Scott Frazier, uh, thank you so much for uh, making time today for this interview. It's really nice to see you. And you've been in the space uh, for 25 years now, and that to a variety of roles, uh, touching both on the business and technology side. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for being for having me, and I've really enjoyed the uh, panelists that you've had to date, and this is really a great forum in this virtual world as you're getting different perspectives um, from thought leading groups and bankers and stakeholders on uh, you know how they're weathering this uh, crisis and, and coming out of it and really it's 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 sharing best practices because we're all in this together so um, really thank you for that a little bit about myself i've been um, very gi endoscopy centric um, pretty much my entire career for now about 25 years and first off, started off in medtech with Microvasive, which was uh, the endoscopy division of Boston Scientific, both in sales, product management, and, and uh, market development. And then had really unique opportunity for my first uh, startup, being one of the uh, first U.S. employees at Given Imaging, where I led marketing efforts um, during the launch of Capsule Endoscopy. And that was such an amazing time frame. And then from there was one of the founding executives of EndoChoice, which is now part of Boston Scientific. And uh, again, we launched during a, a downturn in the economy. We uh, founded the company late 2007, and then 2008 hit when we were trying to raise money. After that was uh, a consultant with a private equity-backed ASC company, uh, and then president of Physicians Endoscopy to form the new division of Physicians Endoscopy, which is the partnership with Capital Digestive Care. And uh, that was an incredible experience to be on the operator side of uh, both an ASC company as well as a practice management company. Since that time, um, I've had the opportunity to uh, work with both leading private equity firms as well as uh, Fortune 500 MedTech and also startup MedTech companies, really advising them on the evolution of what's happening, not just in gastroenterology, but other subspecialty medicine where private equity is investing in MSOs. It's been a real um, honor to have these companies seek me out. And uh, I formally founded Fraser Healthcare, which is my consulting group that advises both private equity and uh, med tech clients. Mm -hmm. And I think even more important than my business experience is um, my dad is a colon cancer survivor. Um, he almost died from, from colon cancer. And that is instilled in me the importance of screening. Uh, so I wanted to start by uh, asking you uh, about uh, the two questions uh, that you told me the other day that most uh, GI practices are thinking about right now. Uh, the first one being, you know, how do we uh, recover? Uh, and uh, the second being, okay, uh, after we recover, how do we evolve? And, and uh, how do we start thinking uh, differently? Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on uh, both these questions. Yeah, I think um, as I look at how to recover and, um, you know, some of the best practices that have been shared uh, by some of your previous guests and just in discussions that I've, you know, had with, with many physicians, it, it's looking at your different lines of business and whether it's your ambulatory surgery center um, as well as your practice, if you have infusion, if you have clinical research, and understanding um, what a pathway to recovery looks like. The, the thing that I think a lot of um, smaller groups don't fully appreciate is their EMRs are a wealth of not only patient information, but identifying 
future patients. Um, as I talk to different groups and also talk to some of the EMR gurus um, that are in this space, is very few groups really do a good job querying or mining that data, meaning that um, you have patient populations that have IBS. You have patient populations um, that are at risk of NASH. And identifying those patients and I, or the at-risk hereditary patients um, and proactively reaching out to them. And it's not your uh, answering service or your call service contacting these patients. I, I would really encourage caregivers, nurses, as well as physicians um, to pick up the phone and proactively call these patients and share with them, educate them that they potentially are at risk and they need to come in for an interval or a screening. Uh, because of the, the, particularly the areas that I mentioned, um, there is some easy to adopt ancillary uh, lines of revenue that groups are, are doing right now. And, you know, if I, I mentioned the IBS patient population, if I look at IBS, these, these patients are very, very difficult and I know frustrating for gastroenterologists to manage because medical treatment is, is not terribly successful. Um, but there is successful diet, dietary management with the FODMAP diet. And there are ancillary streams um, through third parties like Modify Health that allow you to offload your IBS patients um, to their team of dietitians, and they administer the FODMAP diet through a set meal plan. The whole time you are getting, the patient is putting their symptom scores into an iPhone app, and you as a provider have that integrated back into your EMR so you can better manage that patient population. And they're, they're seeing great success. You know, moving over to the hepatology space, I, I think this is literally and figuratively a massive patient population that walks through the clinic doors and, and the, AC, the ASC doors every day. And um, very little is done to identify them uh, or do appropriate workups. And now with the um, recent technology of the fiber scan, which is easily implemented in the office um, and can be done by a medical assistant, maybe takes five minutes. Although not a huge ancillary stream, it helps you identify at-risk patients and then manage them accordingly. And then on top of that, if you have a clinical research entity um, to enroll patients in the new NASH studies, which you know there's billions of dollars right now in development of NASH drugs that are all waiting the FDA clearance. And clinical research has really burned a lot of smaller groups previously, particularly with IBD. And, you know, they, they had a difficult time with it. It was a big investment. Um, there are companies out there uh, like, like Objective GI, which works on a joint venture model to help make this really a frictionless process. They take care of bringing the protocols, training the staff, running budgets, uh, recruiting staff, and all you do as a small to mid-sized practice is in, you know, refer your patients over to this joint venture clinical research entity. And it's um, profit margin on this ancillary is very substantial, you know, upwards of uh, half a million dollars after you have it up and running. So, uh, and it offers a clinical benefit to your patient. So, you know, shifting gears to the ambulatory center, you know, so much of GI is dependent on screening colonoscopy, you know, 60 to 70% of uh of any ambulatory centers you know revenue is is from the screening business and then the downstream revenue from pathology and anesthesia um, also is very substantial it's thinking what can we do for at-risk patients 
um, maybe with advanced imaging. Um, advanced imaging um, has, has been around for almost two decades. And, you know, if I'm thinking about EUS or um, confocal microscopy or the Cellvisio technology, uh, with confocal microscopy, there's established re reimbursement um, for that procedure uh, that CMS has category one code. And, you know, it's an adjunct to EGD with biopsy. And again, it adds about 600 to $650 per case to the facility fee. And, you know, it's meaningful if, if you are doing it appropriately with, with at-risk patients, which everyone is seeing with these high-grade dysplasia patients. So um, there's, there's a lot of things that I think gastroenterologists are trained in during your, your fellowship that a lot of my good friends that, you know, are also gastroenterologists have somewhat neglected because of the fact that there is such, there historically has been such volume and such a need for screening colonoscopy and, and a tremendous revenue stream. And I think it's going back to our training, meaning, you know, gastroenterology training to understand what are we trained in, what clinical service can we provide to our patients uh, that is warranted. And I think that's an important point. And what, what are we going to be paid for? And, you know, the examples of, of what I just gave all have very favorable ancillary revenue streams um, that I would encourage groups to evaluate. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we take uh, diet and nutrition as an ancillary, I, I think everybody knows that it's an important uh, ancillary. Uh, everybody does it, but the margins are so thin uh, on that, uh, so there's no clear payment model. So how do you figure that out? Um, no, it, it, it's a great question, and I know a lot of groups historically, um, even large groups, have maybe hired a dietitian and the, the ROI with that staff member just wasn't favorable. And, you know, one of the things that um, the, the company that I mentioned, Modify Health, has done is they've developed a model where it's uh, their dietitians. You're, you're referring a patient to Modify Health. And for that referral, the patient then is buying the FODMAP diet, which is an eight-week program. Um, not that it's a huge ancillary stream. It's about $100 to $150 per patient that's enrolled. But what it allows you to do is you're not investing in a dietitian. You're not spending the time to try to educate uh, a patient on the FODMAP diet, which is, is complicated. I think even for the most skilled gastroenterologist and a very educated patient, it's hard to understand you know, what to do and what not to do on each week of this diet. And it's being managed with a very smart symptom score app. So essentially, it's taking a very difficult patient population that a lot of gastroenterologists are frustrated with managing. And the, the, the figures about IBS patients, um, you know, moving from gastroenterologist to gastroenterologist, uh, on average, they see five gastroenterologists before they actually feel like they've had some treatment um, because they're such a frustrating patient population to manage. Um, this program is a way to keep these patients, make these patients, their symptoms go away and not eat up valuable resources uh, in your practice or make big investments while still recouping um, some ancillary stream from them. And although not substantial, it's a way to keep that patient engaged in your practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, how about, uh, you, you know, the uh, clinical trials uh, with objective GI that you mentioned? When, when you say half a million dollars, is it per trial? Like, how does that even work? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's a great question. And, and you brought up the, um, the question before about established reimbursement. 
you know, large groups do clinical trials very, very well. Um, if I look at around, around the country, whether it's gastro health, TDDC, or capital digestive care, or Minji, they all have very large clinical trial organizations and, you know, upwards of 20 different protocols at any one given time. It was a big investment, um, and it was a slow ramp. And the nice thing about clinical trials is they're not dependent on reimbursement. Um, you are getting paid directly from the sponsor. And particularly with the latest NASH trials, uh, the enrollment fees are very high because it's such a race right now to get these drugs to, to market from about 30 different uh, pharma companies uh, have drugs in some phase of development right now related to NASH. So what the, uh, the team at Object Objective GI does is they come in under a joint venture model. It's a small startup fee from the, the mid-sized practice. And really, the, 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 it becomes an integrated part of your practice that they are managing for you, meaning that they are not only bringing the protocols to you, um, which is often difficult for groups to you know, get to meet the different uh, clinical trial sponsors, but they have set protocols. They're a very experienced team of uh, clinical research organization uh, executives. And they are providing the uh, training, the staffing, the budgetary process needed to run successful clinical trials. And you as a provider, you know, based on, again, a set criteria, are working up patients. In this case, you're working up patients with FiberScan, which is paid for by the different sponsors, you may work up, you know, 30 patients on, with, with the FiberScan and only identify two that you're enrolling in a trial, but that FiberScan, which is in, in, in your clinic, is being reimbursed for by the clinical trial sponsor. So uh, it's a great way. We, we, the, the numbers on um, fatty liver disease are anywhere from 80 million to 100 million Americans, of which about 25 million will develop NASH. Um, again, this is literally and figuratively a massive, massive patient population that our gastroenterologists see every day, and very few groups are, are doing a lot for these patients. So it's, it, I, I'm, I'm really excited about that particular ancillary um, because, again, it's, it, it falls in line with GI, and so much of fatty liver disease is dietary management, too. So we can help these patients, you know, based on your nutrition training as well, um, you know, by, by just losing, you know, 10, 20 pounds. Uh, let's uh, switch gears to uh, private equity since, uh, you know, you've been involved with uh, private equity for a, for a while. Uh, I want to know what uh, the PE funds are uh, thinking. We are still very, very much in the early stages of the consolidation of the subspecialty of uh, gastroenterology. If I look at other subspecialties where private equity has been very, very active uh, in dermatology or in ophthalmology, particularly in dermatology, you have over 30 platforms. And uh, by the latest estimates I've seen, you have about 50% of the private practice dermatologists are now part of an MSO, um, where, you know, right now it, it eight platforms within GI and close to a thousand gastroenterologist. I know there's a lot of deals that are in the pipeline that are in, um, you know, that should be closing by the end of the year. We still have a really small percentage of the overall, you know, 13,000 to 14,000 gastroenterologists uh, in the U.S. that are part of an MSO. Um, 
you know, in terms of deal structure, um, you know, the thing that's changing right now in this level setting is sellers, meaning the groups, are being asked to take on more risk. Um, and this can be done in a number of different ways. The, the structure typically is in the seller's note. And what the buyers, uh, private equity firms, as well as their lenders are asking them to do is structure deals you know, that allow groups to get an additional payout for that transactional value when they hit their historical levels of 2019. So really the, the, the onus or the burden is on that group. If, I, if I'm a group of 20 gastroenterologists and my volume is, you know, was hit down to 30%, I'm betting on the fact, I'm really betting on myself and my partners that we're going to get back to that 100% level that we were at in 2019 to achieve, you know, the, the full transactional value. Uh, additionally, you know, the structure of these deals uh, are less cash. So no longer is it, you know, this, this massive cash payout um, sellers are being asked and taking more equity, uh, again, betting in yourself. And, you know, I've always stressed to gastroenterologists that are good friends is, you know, many doctors have invested um, in, in real estate or in restaurants or, you know, more risky type investments. Investing in themselves um, is by far the best investment they can ever make. And I think, you know, every, looking at your own ambulatory center is a great example. You know, ambulatory centers were an investment that you made in yourself and your group. And uh, I would argue are absolutely um, one of the most valuable assets probably in your entire portfolio today. Uh, Scott, if you were to put yourself uh, in the shoes of uh, an average GI practice uh, anywhere in the country, how would you go about uh, making a decision today? The GI practice out there has uh, several choices right now, right? Like, you know, they can continue to be uh, independent doing what they're doing now, uh, or they can consolidate uh, with other groups in the local area independently, uh, or, you know, they can seek out private equity and uh, go that route. How do you go about making a decision if you were in their shoes? It's a great question. Um, I, I think the first thing I would do with, with my partners is really do a deep assessment of the local market conditions. Um, and so much of healthcare, as we all know, is local. So not only what you know, the payer market looks like, what our referral market looks like, but I think more importantly, what's happening in our broader healthcare market, meaning um, I'm, I'm gonna reference the, the DC area as a great example, um, where I did a transaction with Capital Digestive previously. The DC market has a common threat that really has caused a lot of consolidation across all subspecialties. And that was a combination of Hopkins moving south and buying up not only hospitals, but primary care in the DC metro area, as well as MedStar, which again is another major hospital group doing the same. That put a real threat across all the subspecialists in the area. And you've seen massive consolidation in that marketplace. Um, not just with gastroenterology and, and capital digestive, but if I look at urology, dermatology, ophthalmology, uh, primary care, you have one of the largest primary care groups with Privia Health uh, in that market. And most recently, an, a transaction during this pandemic was with Shady Grove Fertility, which is uh, a multi-state platform, not just in fertility, but also women's health. You know, they have all consolidated because of the common threat in their local market, and also because they have a major payer 
that has about 30% of that market. So they needed size and scale and sophistication to be able to negotiate contracts. That would be the first step I would do. The, first, the second step, I think, is very similar to the analogy of if you are thinking about selling a house. It's getting your house in order, meaning, you know, if I have an outdated uh, bathroom or I need a new roof, it's making investments um, that will make my practice more attractive to not only a potential strategic, meaning an established MSO platform, or uh, a potential suitor with a PE platform, if that's the avenue I want to head. And I think it's investment in, you know, in an EMR, some data analytics, um, revenue cycle management, as, as you well know, is often an area that groups don't really have sophisticated revenue cycle management or a process and system to track that. And oftentimes are leaving, you know, not only hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars a day on the table because of errors that they're making in coding or just not following and processing claims. Um, you know, there's very low hanging fruit. So it's, it's focused on, you know, if I want to be acquired, making the time and the investment upfront to make my practice more attractive. And then if you're truly thinking about looking and, and staying independent during this consolidation, I think it's looking at what can we do and what can we offer addition to our patients. Um, you know, we, we talked about screening colonoscopy business being, you know, a threat. It's really diversifying your group uh, into some of the areas that I, I talked about before. Um, one area I, I didn't mention, which is an area that's been around for years and again has established reimbursement, is hemorrhoidal treatment. Um, it's looking at sometimes, you know, the, the small incremental things that you can add to your practice that are going to make you more stable, um, you know, as, as we weather through this storm. Now is the time to scrutinize and, and review every one of your contracts. Um, it can be from your, your leases on your office or your ambulatory center with your landlords um, looking to defer payments uh, as you are trying to recover. How could uh, GI groups collaborate with industry? Industry, whether it's the big pharma companies or med tech companies and, and supply companies, have local marketing campaigns and budgets. And more importantly, promote practices um, that are utilizing their products or maybe recruit patients via social media uh, in a certain disease segment. So, you know, as opposed to industry coming to you and um, trying to sell you on a new product and then offering up a potential marketing program, I would reach out to your industry par uh, partners and inquire about this because it does exist and they have resources. There are some great courses and forums every year, um, one being the uh, GI Roundtable that um, Gene Overholt started and Klaus Mergener has now taken to the, to the next level. This meeting, which has been around for years, is really aware, is where the, the leaders in private practice GI um, talk about different business strategies and new ancillaries. Um, and it's a great forum. I would also encourage private groups to become members of DHPA, uh, which is the Digestive Health Physicians Association, an advocacy group that now has close to 3,000 members um, across the country. And the sharing of best practices with DHPA leadership has been phenomenal. And I would argue DHPA has been part of the, the wave of PE sponsors, meaning they're sharing best practices, transactional you know, advice on how to maneuver through a transaction, what to prepare for, what to do uh, with each other.
And again, it's a very collaborative effort. So, you know, the, in a nutshell, understand your data, understand your local market, understand where there may be threats. When you push this ball uh, five years from now uh, or, or longer into the horizon, what do you see uh, happen? What is the holy grail for GI? You know, it, it's a great question. And I, I think that, um, you know, the market forces right now uh, that you mentioned, and, and one of the biggest market forces are payers. If I look at the larger ecosystem within gastroenterology, um, at the top of the food chain are payers. Payers have consolidated massively and, and now are, are looking at buying providers. So they, they, they're not only consolidating across different markets, they're consolidating service lines. If I then go down a, a step, we've talked about hospital consolidation, that, that has happened. Then a down a step is you look at industry. Industry has consolidated. Um, you know, my two previous uh, startup examples, both with Given Imaging, which is now part of Medtronic, and EndoChoice, which is now part of Boston Scientific, are, are great examples of what's happened with industry consolidation. And pharma consolidation has been massive as well. The reason why the consolidation has happened all around us has so much to do with economies of scale and resources is, you know, speaking from my executive experience at EndoChoice, we didn't have the resources and the field team that a Boston Scientific has. They've taken our company, which was approaching $80 million in revenue, and those product lines have grow, grown them substantially in the last three years because of their commercial infrastructure that we just couldn't invest in. So scale matters. And if I look forward in terms of, you know, at, unfortunately at the bottom of the food chain in this consolidation are the gastroenterologists or the subspecialists. They haven't consolidated. But I look at groups that have consolidated and, and have integrated as well. And I think that's a key point. Um, you know, I, I know you had Jim Levitt on previously from GastroHealth. They've been at this now over four years with Audax. And you've seen the evolution with what GastroHealth has done is they are a fully integrated platform right now and have tremendous efficiencies that are all centralized versus some other platforms that are just starting that still have yet to do that integration and create those efficiencies. So I think in the future, the more integrated a platform can be and a GI group can be lowering their administrative burdens, but also allowing them to maximize different ancillary lines, maximize you know, at-risk type contracts. If we look at you know, whether it's a colonoscopy bundle or managing a certain disease patient population like IBD, these are the initiatives that integrated groups are pursuing that really um, will limit and exclude private groups because of the resources needed and the scale needed to be able to negotiate with a payer or a major employer. Um, you know, it's been really interesting to see what, what some of these large scale groups have done going direct to employers um, with, you know, GI health and, you know, having a direct service line to their practice. So that being said, I, I think consolidation is gonna happen and, you know, I would encourage groups to have an open mind to it. It is not a threat at all. It is something that is an evolution and it allows groups to stay independent. These companies that are nimble or practices that are nimble or also embrace change will come out of this pandemic stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, Scott Fraser, thank you so much uh, for all uh, these insights. It's been uh, fantastic uh, chatting with you. Praveen, I've really enjoyed really your labor of love, um, if you will, in terms of the, not only the research, but the writing and, and the time um, sharing best practices with the broader AI community.